Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. My name is Tyler, and it is a real privilege to be here to start us off again into Isaiah. Um, Don did a great introduction last week, just gave you the, the scope of the whole book and sort of gave us the preview, uh, the movie trailer, if you like, where we're going. Um, and so we're going to get into it tonight. We're going to get into the actual text. Um, I've heard that uh, Don said that it was going to be a hard one. This, this uh, particular message, these first five chapters, are not particularly encouraging. In fact, they're pretty brutal in terms of uh, what God has to say to his people. But I hope that as we, um, as we get into this, you're going to see, as we've titled this whole series, you're going to see judgment God's judgment on his people, you're also going to see quite a lot of hope. So we're going to see judgment and hope and see the gospel, where the gospel comes from through this, uh, this prophet Isaiah who lived 2,700 years ago, but whose words are still amazingly relevant for us today. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into it. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would come now by your spirit and sanctify us, set us apart, change us in and by your truth for your glory. And anyway, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I am going to not, I'm not going to leave you in suspense as to where we're going um, with this particular message because I don't like suspense personally. In fact, I have a love-hate relationship with suspense movies. Um, and books. Uh, it's actually more closer to hate. Um, I don't even really like to watch sporting events that much if it's really close in the fourth quarter. And I think it's because I was scarred somewhere in my childhood of, you know, they say that men don't have emotions or get emotional. Uh, I don't think anyone who's ever said that has ever sat through the fourth quarter of a close game with my father. Um, no, I love my dad, but he loves his sport. Um, I, I just I, I prefer to skip the tension. Honestly, if somebody you know spoils the ending for me, it does not bother me. You, I will never get upset with you. Um, you know, they call these games that are real close to the end. They call them nail biters, nail bite. Like you would actually physically want to, you know, bite off the ends of your fingernails to relieve the tension, and that falls under the banner of entertainment, which I've never quite understood why that, how that. Anyway, I just want to know how it ends. That's me. All right? Maybe I'm weird, but that's me. And one of the reasons I love the Bible so much is that the Bible is not a suspense thriller. It, there, it does not leave us in suspense. In fact, from the very first chapter, from the opening lines of the Bible, the end is broadcast. In the beginning, God. And from that moment all the way until the very final amen, which is the last word in the Bible, just if you ever come across that trivia question anywhere, um, we know what's going to happen. We know who's going to win. We know who's in control. And we know who this is for. The Bible is about God. It is written by God. It is for God. The gospel is about God. It is for God. And we're going to see that all throughout the book of Isaiah as we talk about judgment and hope. All of this is for God. Right um, after the opening couple of chapters in Genesis, we, you, you may know the story that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against 
God. They, they did not listen to what the, the one sort of job that they had to, to not eat from the, the fruit of one particular tree, and they were deceived, and they did it anyway. And when God comes to um, have a conversation with them and sort of lay out the consequences of their actions, in the midst of that, in the midst of laying out what essentially is a curse, what essentially is a curse, where what was a perfect, perfected Eden world has now fallen under a curse because of their sin. But in the midst of that curse, here's what God has to say. He says, and we find this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, he's speaking to the, the serpent who is the personified um, Satan or evil enemy of God that deceives um, the man and woman. And he says to the serpent, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You may say, what does that mean? This is a promise, and it's three chapters into the Bible, it is a promise of a happy ending. The happiness of the ending for those who are God's people is never in doubt, even from here, from chapter 3. You see the offspring of the woman, this word offspring, it's a singular noun, one offspring in mind, will, it says, strike or crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will crush his heel. What does it mean? Well, scholars for centuries have said this is the earliest foretelling or foreshadowing of the gospel. The offspring of the woman is Jesus. Um, He will ultimately destroy the serpent, crushing its head, crushing evil underneath his feet. And just three chapters in the Bible, we already know how the story ends. And so if the Bible was written to be a suspense thriller, it probably wouldn't sell very many copies um, because it broadcasts the ending right up front. There's no mystery or unresolved tension that keeps the reader coming back for more. And I think there's a reason for that. Well, a negative reason is that the Bible was not written, unlike suspense thrillers, the Bible wasn't written to entertain you. The Bible was written to transform you. And so right there from the very beginning, the conclusion, the ending, the victory, the purpose, the author, none of those things are left up to your imagination. They are put right there in black and white for us. The same thing is true in the book of Isaiah. And we need to begin Isaiah with the end in mind. God is going to win. God is for God. God is going to win for his own sake for his own fame, for his own reputation, he is going to bring this to pass. You're going to see in the first five chapters of Isaiah a lot of human failure. Human failure that looks very familiar. We are very familiar with our own weakness, with our own proclivity to sin, with our own failure. And yet, in spite of all of this destruction and failure and mess that we see, God is going to win. God is going to have, righteousness is going to have the final word. So in these first five chapters, if you have your Bible, open up to chapter 1. These, um, the whole book of Isaiah is made up of a series of what we call prophetic oracles, which is a big way of saying, man of God giving a speech. 
An oracle is a speech. It's a, it's a formal speech that was given, would have been given by someone who was officially designated as a spokesperson for God, the prophet. And Isaiah is one of those people. And so there are these series of oracles. And later on, these oracles were arranged in a particular order, but the order that we have them is not chronological. Most of the prophetic books don't go chronologically. It's just they're arranged thematically. There's a little bit of chronological order in, the, in there, but for the most part, they're arranged by themes. They're, the way that the oracles are arranged is trying to communicate something. These oracles, if they were given today, they would have been equivalent to like a very important speech given uh, like by a politician or a politician's um, assistant or something like this. They would have been broadcast on national television. They would have been up on Facebook Live. These were very important speeches that were given um, in that day. All of Isaiah's oracles are arranged for us under the heading that we find in chapter 1. So all, everything that's going to follow comes under the heading in chapter 1, which you would have read last week. And chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. So the whole book is a vision. It is a vision. It's something that he saw and received from God and then communicated to the people. It's God's revelation applied to the situation of that day. Um, it says that these, this vision came to him and it was spoken then to the situation of the people in a particular place, Jerusalem, a city, and then Judah was the surrounding territory around that, and under these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. So that's a 60-year time frame. Then in verse 2 it says, Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. So, not only are these oracles the things that Isaiah saw and then communicated, these oracles are also the very words of God. The Lord has spoken. When Isaiah speaks, the Lord has spoken. So these words carry a weight. They carry an importance and an authority that says we have to listen. And this, these are not just for the people who lived in that day, not just for the people in Judah and Jerusalem, but he calls everyone and everything in all of creation, the whole heavens, the whole earth, to listen up and pay attention. It's a little bit like it's a, the, he um, is a, a judge or a prosecuting attorney in a big courtroom. And this courtroom, it is, includes, it's big enough to include every single person in all of creation, in all of time, is in the audience in this courtroom as the spokesman for God makes his case from the front. And so he's saying, listen up, everyone. I'm about to lay out some pretty heavy charges against the people of God. And I'm calling you all to be my witnesses. So that's where we're going. One other observation there from um, verse 2, that there's a, there's a connection, I think, in the New Testament. Um, in the book of Romans, Paul does a very similar thing when he starts out in Romans, the sort of last half of Romans chapter 1, and he is laying out charges that are specifically applied, that will specifically apply to God's people, the Jews at that time, 
But then he makes an application that essentially says, what I'm saying, this cycle of, of idolatry and sin and turning away from God, that we can see in a, on a small scale among God's people, the Jews, is actually what all of humanity does. Everyone is implicated. So you, the witnesses, are also implicated. It's not just about these people over here. This is spoken to everyone. Paul says this in Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 9. He says, For we have already charged that both the Jews and Gentiles, or the nations, are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. So when we come to these oracles in Isaiah, know that these, these oracles of judgment are given to us. They're spoken to us, not just to the people in that day. So what are the charges? Really, the charges stretch out. Well, we find them really through the whole book of Isaiah. But chapters 1 to 5 are a concentrated series of just one charge after another. One charge after another. And they all start out this way. Here's how, it, here's how they start. The end of verse 2. Children, I have raised, I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. It's amazing here. We don't get a lot of this kind of language in the Old Testament of father, that God is the father and we are his children. That language is much more common in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. But, all through, but in Isaiah, verse 2, this is where the, the charges start on the basis that God is speaking to his children, the ones that he loves. Children I have raised, I've nurtured, I've brought them up. I've cared for them, I've protected them, I've provided for them, but they have rebelled against me. They've rebelled against me. If you think about the history, if you know the history of the people of Israel, when he's talking about how he nurtured them, how he protected them, it was very, it's speaking very literally. The, the people of Israel were in slavery they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They were mistreated and, and had a very, very terrible existence there. And God sent them Moses to be their rescuer and to bring them out of Egypt with, a, with it says, with a mighty hand, with all these uh, miraculous um, wonders that he did for the Pharaoh so that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, would have finally let them go. The, very, you know, the climax of that being the Passover where all, every firstborn uh, male in Egypt was killed, and the Israelite children, all of them lived, all of them were protected, and they were able to have passed safely through the Red Sea as it parted, and out of Egypt and into the promised land. That is what God did for his people, not because they deserved it, not because he, they were special or more spiritual or, or, or you know, better than other people, but because God chose them and he set his love on them and he, decided, he said, you are my children and I'm going to rescue you and bring you into this promised land and into a special relationship with me. That's how he treated them. That's the story. And yet here we see that the children, in spite of all of that, they've turned their back on God. They've rebelled. And then in verse 4 it says, here's what they've become. They've become a sinful nation or a sinful people. Oh, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They've abandoned the Lord. 
They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. Whereas once they had this close relationship with God who saved them, now they've forgotten him. They've despised him, and now they're estranged. They're cut off from this close relationship with God. How is it possible for people who were once so aware of God, who were once such passionate worshipers, to now be cut off? We hear these charges knowing that they're coming from a loving father to his rebellious kids, and we want to ask why. How did this happen? And see, in verse 5, I love this. Look at the heart of the father. The father is asking. He's pleading with them. He's saying, why? You know, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? This makes no logical sense. I want to ask you the same question. If you consider yourself a Christian, see, we don't primarily look back the way the Israelites would have looked back to the exodus or the, you know, the rescuing from Egypt. We have an even better rescue that we know about. There's, there's an even better exodus. It's the exodus from the death into life, from darkness into light. That's the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you and me. If anybody that's a Christian, anybody that trusts in Jesus as Lord and and Savior, that's what you're saying. And yet we too often turn our backs on God. We also run and do our own thing because we want Autonomy, we want to be our own Lord. We want to be our own Savior. We want to have our own way, even for just a minute. And then, okay, and then I'll, Sunday I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll confess. And We justify that kind of thinking so easily, which is exactly what the children of Israel did. Well, I'm not going to even get to this, but if you, in your own reading of chapters 1 through 5, one of the charges that's laid out God says, you come every festival, every appointed time, and you bring sacrifices to me because that was required for the forgiveness of sins. But your heart's not in that. You, as soon as you do that, as soon as you slaughter this animal and you think that by that we have a close relationship, and then you go off and you do what you want. And God says, I hate that. And the same thing applies to us for, for, for those of us that we come and we do the religious things, we tick the things off the list, we go to church, we read our Bible and do our quiet time, we have DG or whatever it is, give generously to this and that. And then, but for the rest of our time, that's my time. It's, and that's not how it's meant to, to be. It, it, this is a relationship between father and children that goes 24-7. It's, it's not a, a checklist We human beings, we, we love God the Father's providing for us food, love, security, comfort. We struggle with a Father that also tells us the best way to live and to worship and to make plans. We, we wrestle 
we still wrestle with wanting to be in control and having it our own way. Despite everything that the Father has already done for us and revealed to us. Isaiah tells us why these privileged children have rebelled. We find it in chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. Here's what he says. For you have abandoned your people, for you, God, have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of divination from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They're in league with foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold, and there is no limit to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there's no limit to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They worship the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. I I thought about actually um, giving a modern rendering of this. Okay, take out the horses and chariots and the things that sound a bit old-fashioned, a bit ancient. Just chuck in some modern substitutes for those. You know, a land is full of cars and planes and there's no limit to our, your, their internet speed. And, I mean, this is, this is a people who is clearly in love with their stuff and their, their technology and their um, wisdom. They're not trusting in God. They don't need to. At least they don't think they do. This is what happens to the children of God over and over again. They, <laughs> they, they're there at home, and then they start, they start looking to the kids down the street, the house next door, and thinking, how come they got that? That Philistine kid down there, he's got a fortune teller. You know what a fortune teller does? A fortune teller tells him exactly what he needs to do. Gives him a security, control. How come I don't have a fortune teller? I want a fortune teller. That's not fair. I have kids. Been through this conversation. It's quite frequent, quite common. Um, but that's what we do as adults. It's what the people of God are doing here. They're looking at the nations, at the other countries around them, and they're saying, I want to be smart like them. I want to be wise like them. I want to control my own destiny like they do. So maybe if I go down the street and I can make a friendship pact, I can shake hands with the Philistine kid, and then we can get together and we can pull our resources and we can pull our armies, and then we don't need God anymore. Genesis chapter 11, if you know that story of the the Tower of Babylon, all the people from all over the world got together and they made a pact with each other. They said, we're going to take, we're going to make a bunch of bricks and we're going to build this tower high to the heavens because maybe if we build it high enough, then we can get there on our own and we don't need God. And we can just worship ourselves and we can worship the things our fingers have made. That is, that's not an ancient impulse. You think idols and towers, that sounds so, that's a human impulse. We have the same temptation. Why, why is it that people work so hard to build up their portfolio and their superannuation and get the biggest house in the best suburbs so their kids can go to the best school? Why do people work so hard? Because they want 
control. They do not want to be in a situation where other people are controlling their options and limiting their options. Ultimately, this is a, rebel, a, a symptom of our rebellion against God. That's where, it, that's where it comes from at the root. This is us. We want to make stuff by ourselves, for ourselves, so that we can glory in ourselves. There's a problem. The problem is this. God, who created everything that we want to use to become autonomous, God doesn't share his glory. He doesn't share it. One day, everyone that, who lifts himself up and says, look at me, look at what I've made, look at what we've made, everyone who does that is going to come crashing down. And we see this throughout the scriptures again and again and again. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. If you've got that, your Bible open there to chapter 2, it says, the pride of mankind. Notice here, this is everybody, the pride of mankind. This is not saying the pride of the people that lived in Jerusalem in 700 BC. This is the pride of mankind will be humbled. Human loftiness will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And that's the problem we have. As much as we want to believe that we can save ourselves, and we can climb up to heaven without God, it's not possible. It won't happen because the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Every tower of Babel, along with every tall poppy that thinks that they don't need God, is going to get cut down. That's what Isaiah is telling, he's reminding his people, and they should know this. These are the people who knew and recited the story of the the Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world at that time, was absolutely obliterated and annihilated and humiliated by God. They knew the story, and yet they forget because they think, well, maybe if we exalt ourselves, maybe God won't notice. He says he's going to notice. And the result is utter devastation. Fast forward. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 1. Here the charges continue against the children. They reach a climax in, in this chapter, in chapter 5. And it's called, this little section is called the Song of the Vineyard. The Song of the Vineyard. I'm going to read the Song of the Vineyard, the beginning of it, from Eugene per, uh, Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. Here's how he renders this. I'll sing a ballad to the one I love. This is God singing. God singing here. I'll sing a ballad to the one I love. A love ballad about his vineyard. The one I loved had a vineyard, a fine, well-placed vineyard. He hoed the soil and pulled the weeds and planted the very best vines. He built a lookout, built a wine press, a vineyard to be proud of. He looked for a vintage yield of grapes, but for all his pains, he got junk grapes. The word there that he renders junk grapes is, you know, it, some translations, wild, worthless, sour, useless. You get the picture. Again, 
children have I raised and nurtured and brought them up. And God comes expecting a harvest of beautiful, life-giving fruit that will bring glory to God, the keeper of the vineyard, and blessing to the nations around the place. And what did he get instead? Junk. Garbage. Useless. That's harsh language. There's emotion, though. There. God's not just trying to burn these guys and with, you know, he, he, he's not eager to strike them with thunderbolts. There's children. He loves them. He's not taking his love away from them. All his labor, this labor of love, all this agony on their behalf. And he just goes looking for a beautiful crop. And it's a total waste. Jesus picks up on this image of the vine and the vine keeper in John 15. You may have heard these verses before. I, Jesus says, am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. It's the junk grapes. Later, Jesus says these words which are familiar to us as well. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Do you see the connection? Here, here they are, the children of God. What was, their, what was their ultimate problem? Why they couldn't produce beautiful, useful, life-giving fruit? I mean, yes, they sinned and they behaved badly, but at the root of that was a bunch of branches that did not like the vine. They, they did not want to be in the vine. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to be on their own. They wanted to do their own thing and control their own destiny. And as a result, no fruit. No purpose. No legacy. No joy. Their, their, their lives and their cities literally became rubbish. Worthy of just throwing into the bonfire. Friends, to, to remain in Christ, or to use the other, the sort of the more familiar, to, uh, to abide in Christ, what it means is it means to submit to his rule, his ownership over you, to say, I belong to you, body and soul. And then, as I belong to you, as I am in you and you are in me, then I can produce fruit. You will be changed when you abide in him. What you desire will be changed. What you want, your new and improved behavior will flow from new and improved desires. And you can't desire what is good unless your heart has been changed, unless you're receiving from the vine. One of the best ways to remain in him, to abide in him, is to spend time with him. That's why we are so often encouraging you to spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, both individually and corporately. Spend time together with other Christians, worshiping, just being silent, serving, abiding in him, and he'll do this work in you, producing fruit that is for his glory, 
for your joy and for the joy of the nations. And so back to Isaiah chapter 5, we're left with this serious question. What is God going to do with these junk grapes? What's he going to do with them? What would you do if you were a farmer and you got a worthless crop? What would you do with it? Um, If you're like me and you're not so good in the kitchen, you may have experienced one or two food fails along the way. If my, the walls of my kitchen could talk, um, they might report some things that I don't want you to hear, and uh, my bin has, uh, has been filled before with food that went, came straight out of the oven and straight into the bin. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I have. Um, but that is what he is describing here. Um, it's worthless. In chapter 5, it goes on in verse 5, it says that vineyard will be devoured. God's going to take away the hedge of protection. That's where that phrase comes from. Um, He's going to take away the hedge that's around the vineyard. It's going to be trampled. It's going to be devoured. Verse 6, it's going to become a waste, and the weeds are going to grow up around it. Verse 9, it's desolate. And then we have this in verse 25. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against his people. He raised his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked, and their corpses were like garbage in the streets. See, the future for this sinful nation is very dark and very bleak. And there's a sense in which Isaiah is saying, if you don't return to God, if you don't stop rebelling against him, this is your future. But it raises another question. If God is going to utterly destroy his children because they've rebelled, what about his promises? The promises that he's going to win. The promises that through Abraham's descendants that the whole world, all nations and all families are going to be blessed through him. The promise he made to David that David would always have a king, someone ruling on the throne in Jerusalem. Are all those promises now null and void because of the rebellion and sin of the nation? How is anyone going to survive? Where is the hope? That's that's what we should be asking when we get to the end of chapter 5. It doesn't seem like there's a happy ending in store. But we have to go back to where we started, because I told you that that we know from Genesis that the happy ending is coming. We know that he promises to purify and to redeem and save a remnant, a small remnant of his people. We know, and we know that it will happen because it's not about them, just like it's not about us. It's about God. It's about his glory, his name, his reputation, his word, his everything is on the line. Um, I, I'm actually really enjoying this um, election season in South Australia. I kind of like politics, um, and I, I'm not a citizen, so I can't vote, so I just am watching it as a spectator. Um, but one of the things I like about it is I like how, you know, just the candidates' photos are, are everywhere. Everywhere there's just pictures of, of, of people who are asking you to trust them. 
and to tr- take their word when they make a promise and say, I'm going to, if I, you vote for me and my party, I'm going to do this. And my picture, my smiling face is right there to say that you, you know, you trust this face. Um, and we do take that seriously. We're an image-based people. There's a reason they do that, because they know that looking at an image of an actual human face is more convincing for many people um, than just looking at a name. In this particular culture, they were a name-based cult. Names were incredibly weighty. And so everything about your, you know, your character, your word, all of that, it rests on your name. You do not want to do anything that would give you a bad name. And God speaks of himself in the same way in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 48 verse 9. Here's what God says. He says, I will delay my anger. I will delay my anger. And we've just seen his anger. He's talking about, man, these guys, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to send for the the armies of Assyria and Babylon to come and wipe them out, and their corpses are going to line the streets. Here, he says, verse chapter 48, I will delay my anger. Why? For the sake of my name. I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise, so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. How do we know that God's promises won't fail? Because his name is on the line. Listen, friends, God will never forgive your sin because he doesn't think it's a big deal. It is a big deal. He'll never forgive your sin because he grades on a curve and, you know, no one's perfect. He'll never forgive your sin because he just kind of pretends like he didn't see it. He sees it. He promised that all sin would be punished. Every injustice would be made right. His name is on the line. But it's because of his name that he would receive glory and praise, that you and I are not totally destroyed. We're not cut off. We won't be consumed in the fire, but it's for his sake, for his name. All of his promises will come to pass. The promise to punish sin and the promise to save his people. How? How will he do what seems impossible so that his name is not profaned? How is this possible? Let's go back to Isaiah. Go back to chapter 1. Very famous passage, I think, here in verses 18 to 20. I'm going to read it for you. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're crimson red, they'll be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice the language here. If you do this, this will happen. God says, I put my name and my word on the line. God, the loving, tender father, who has been utterly rejected by his kids over and over and over again, is still holding out hope for them. If you stop rebelling, if you come back, then the land will be blessed. If you continue resisting, then you'll be eaten. So there's hope for those who repent. The problem here is not that there's no hope. The problem here is there's almost no one who wants it. No one who wants to humble themselves enough before God. 
And this is human. So many times, even in our human relationships, that we would rather suffer than humble ourselves before someone that we have wronged, or, or, or even more so before someone that has wronged us. We'd rather suffer because repentance, turning back, saying, I'm not going to hold this sin against you, is really hard. So is this the end? What if everyone refuses to repent? What if no one comes back to God and everyone turns their own way? Isaiah tells us over and over again, even if it seems no one listens, no one repents, no one does good, God will preserve a faithful few, a remnant, and they will bring renewal to the nation, or God will bring renewal through them. Most of the time, these, this remnant are those who are poor, they're downtrodden, they're overlooked, they're ordinary people that end up becoming part of the remnant. First sign the remnant shows up in chapter 1, verse 9, where we read, If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we'd be like Sodom. Sodom was a city, you know, back in Genesis that was completely wiped out for their sin. They were, a, it, it was almost like, I mean, this is an insult. God is comparing his own children to them. Wow. But even then we see grace. God's left a few survivors. And he does it for his own sake. We reap the benefit, but it's for God's sake. This is the cycle of Israel's sin, followed by God's judgment, followed by the remnant being raised up and restored, multiplied, and then followed by more sin and judgment. This is a cycle, and we see it all through the Old Testament. We see echoes of the same story, the same cycle in, our, in the church today. And if that story was the story, this endless cycle of, of, judge, of, sin, you know, of God raising up and nurturing his people, them sinning and rebelling, then judgment, and then raising up again a remnant, and then judging again, if that was the end of the story, then there would be no hope. But it's not the end. We have hope that is, will break this cycle. And Isaiah begins to see it, and it begins to break into his vision. And I want to point this out to you in chapter 4. Beginning of chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Here's where the cycle starts to break. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy, all in Jerusalem written in the book of life, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. See, the remnant, these faithful few, the survivors that God chooses, their pride, it says, and their glory will be in the fruit that comes from a branch, a beautiful and glorious branch. Where does this branch come from? What is it? Well, this starts out in verse 2 by saying, in that day. Whenever you're reading Isaiah and you see that phrase, on that day or in that day, it's refer he's referring to the future, something that's going to happen at some point in the future. God is going to do something completely and utterly new. 
that is completely different from this cycle that I've just laid out. So in that day, on that day, something is going to break into the cycle. And he's looking. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. He didn't know that, you know, 700 years after he was writing these words and seeing the vision that Jesus would come on the scene and die on the cross and bear the sin. of the, He didn't know the time. And we don't know the time when Jesus is going to return. But we know that it will happen because God is going to break into the cycle. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day when God will come and fully establish his kingdom. Sin and evil will be totally and cataclysmically eradicated from among the people. It's what we see the spirit of burning there in verse 4. God will be with his people. He'll rule over his people in righteousness and justice. His people will be holy. They've been set apart. Their names are chosen, written in the book of life. Same image you see it in Revelation chapter 21. This is looking forward. This is your future. If you're in Christ, your name is written in this book of life. You are being made holy, being made righteous through Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. And the glory of it is the fruit, it says, that comes from the branch. The branch is going to show up a few more times in Isaiah. And again, because I don't like suspense, I'll just give you the the end. The branch is Jesus. It is a reference to Jesus the Messiah. We see him again. If you want to, don't believe me, go look at chapter 11. Read Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to come to that chapter on Easter Sunday. There's a lot more about the branch. It's Jesus. Um, He is the snake crusher. He is the reason that anyone can ever be called holy. He is the reason that anyone can ever be righteous. He is the only way that the sin cycle can be broken. He is the only way that your guilt can be removed. He is the only way that you can be cleansed. So remember these two promises. All sin and rebellion will be punished. That's what Isaiah is saying in these five chapters, and he's just laying out their sin. And nobody can read these five chapters and say, hey, that doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm innocent. No one can read this and say I'm innocent. All sin and rebellion will be punished. And yet a remnant of survivors will be restored. They will be made holy. Their name's written in the book of life. They will be cleansed, and they will be with God forever. Those are the two promises. How can they both be true? We've got to stay tuned to Isaiah to find out. But since we already know the end of the story, again, I can tell you, they're true because of Jesus. Jesus made a way for every sin to be punished and for men and women to be made holy. Only in Jesus are those two things possible at the same time. He did that by absorbing the punishment for sin on the cross. When Isaiah sees a vision of corpses lying in the street, really what he's saying is that that is the only way that this sin cycle can be broken is through death. Either the death of the sinner or the death of the sin substitute, Jesus. It's the only way the cycle can be broken. The cross is the answer to the question of how God can stay true to all of his promises. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Paul tells us that. If you've never heard this, this is the 
This is the gospel. This is the essence of the gospel. This is good news that is given to you. So it's such that if you right now are experiencing the emptiness and devastation of sin, if you feel the weight of these woes, of these charges falling on you, and saying, that's me, this is me, I'm the one that is chasing after the things that I've made, and I'm the one that's running away from God. I'm the one that wants to be in control. That's me. And God says, come Come to me. I'm your father. And because of Jesus, I can rescue you, and I will rescue you. I love you. Death and despair never have to be the final word in your life, ever. Only through Jesus is death and the sin cycle broken and defeated forever. Though your sins are like scarlet, through the cross of Jesus, they can be as white as snow. That's your only hope. It's my only hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we, it is a hard word. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who hears these charges being laid out against sinful people, He's saying, that's, that's me. That's, I'm trying to build my own kingdom and run my own life and be free, of, be free of you. Lord, would you in your kindness lead them to repentance, to turning back to you, to coming home because of Jesus. But for those of us here who are your, your children, who know you, who would say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, Lord, we still know and we confess that we too wrestle with sin. We wrestle with the desire to be, to throw off the um, authority and, and, and throw off your goodness and to throw off your presence and live our own lives and for, our, for our glory. But we believe you when you say you won't give your glory away to anyone else and that that is for our good and for the good of the whole world, Lord. And Help us to turn from our flirting with sin and to return to you, knowing that you will heal us, you will restore us. Lord, that you've made all of this possible through the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice of your son Jesus, the branch. Help us to be so connected through your spirit that our lives wouldn't just be free from sin, so to speak, but that our lives would be useful, fruitful for the joy of the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.